from Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. New Girl creator Liz Merriweather remembers some of the content restrictions she had back in the day while writing the sometimes saucy comedy for broadcast TV. I think the biggest one I remember was just there was a whole thing with um, June Diane Raphael plays Jess's best friend and um, Schmidt goes to her kind of to like try to figure out how to pleasure a woman right or something and they were, like she got out like a diagram of a vagina and like the 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 original scripted section we could say is none of it it was like a like a cia report that's like everything's redacted (laughs) except for like one word so we just had to come up with like all of these euphemisms and i actually think it turned out to be like much funnier but it was it was a really funny moment shooting it because there was a the woman from standards actually came to set I'm Michael Schneider, and on this edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, it's a new girl reunion. Creator and showrunner Elizabeth Merriweather and cast members Zoe Deschanel, Max Greenfield, Jake Johnson, Lamorne Morris, and Hannah Simone are all here. Later on, we speak with Godfather of Harlem star Forrest Whitaker about the series and what got him excited again about acting. But first, on the Variety Awards Circuit Roundtable, we wrap up Emmy's 2021 Phase 1 as nominations voting has ended. It's all next on this edition of Variety's Awards Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Hey gang, it's Mike Schneider here for one more roundtable as voting is over. Pencils down, people. It's too late. I hope you chose wisely because this is it. I mean, you, you the fate of the world is now in your hands. So as usual, joining us in the roundtable, it's Jazz Tanke. Jazz. Hello. Still sporting that, uh, that, that cool bandage now. It's like, that was a serious fight you got into. So Seriously, I'm, battle scars. I should be in Fast and Furious 10. <laughs> exactly. Fast 10. And Danielle Terciano, who's on vacation, but loves us so much that she's still stopping by to, to talk all things TV. Yes, I'm, I'm breaking into my very serious reading schedule to talk about TV. So, yeah. How many books have you read over the past, uh, what, like less than a week, right? Yeah, it's been less than a week. Well, by the time you guys hear this, it will have been a week, but I have read seven so far. And I'm in, I'm in the middle of my eight. But to be fair, some of them, you know, they're like quick beach reads. They're, you know, some of them are like 250 pages. I barely count those. All right. Well, any of them uh, going to be adapted into TV shows? Are we going to be talking about these books as TV uh, series next year or the year after? Yeah, actually, I read Malibu Rising, um, which has already been announced that it's being adapted. And, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to read it um, was just to see, you know, what it would look like in my head versus what it would look like on screen. So it's it's a really interesting story. It, it reminded me a little bit, oddly, of Little Fires Everywhere, just some similar themes. That's that similar mystery of like who started this fire. Um, but it was, it was really well done told over, you know, some flashbacks and then present day for the, these four siblings, um, who had a, a very famous father who really didn't have a hand in raising them at all. So it was really interesting. All right. You heard, heard it here first. And finally, I have a, uh, a intro song for our, our guest. Let's see if this, uh, works here. Purple Haze for Elaine Lowe. Appropriate. <laughs> Hi. What is going on, Elaine? 
Well, you know, changing it up a little after the pandemic. It's like uh, it's like when you break up with somebody and you get a pandemic haircut uh, or pandemic breakup. This is my uh, yeah, my pandemic haircut. No, it's 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 rocking. It's <laughs> <laughs> the kids say rocking. What am I doing? I'm like 80 years old. I'm just glad that you explained it because no one can see her. So they're going to be like, what is happening? <laughs> well, go on Elaine's social media. She she was uh, sh- showed it off on the socials the the other day. So uh, it's this is like the, the second stage, right? I feel like it's even a little more purple than it was uh, like Actually, a week or Actually, it's two a ago. little less purple. It was dark oh. purple and now it's lightning. So... I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to go get it touched up soon. Got to upgrade thank you. it. <laughs> Love it, Elaine. Thank you for joining us. And the reason why we we rushed to get Elaine in here now is she has decided to abandon us. Uh, abandon is a strong word, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I am departing for different climbs. Different climbs, <laughs> but uh, congratulations. We thank are you. extremely sad to see you go. Um, it's been. A blast the last two and a half years, although for the last year, we've only seen you in a box uh, on our computers. Half of my tenure at Variety has been during a pandemic state, but uh, I'll be sad to see you guys go. I'll be sad to go. Yeah. Well, nonetheless, in in your amount of time here, I mean, you did a a lot of fun stuff, a lot of, you know, great stories, a lot of of scoops, a lot of, uh, you know, great uh, features, news features, ton of stuff for Danielle. Um, any sort of stories that you're particularly proud of or, you know, you want to, you know, tell, tell the folks to go back and, and uh, reread in the archives. They can binge it now. They can, they can stream it on, at Variety.com. <laughs> um, things that kind of stand out uh, your, your tenure here at, at the Big V. Oh, well, let's see. Um, I've really appreciated all the cover stories that I've, I've either gotten to write or co-write, um, especially the one on uh, Bella Bajaria last year over at Netflix. Uh, given her, you know, her her big role up as uh, as head of global TV over there, as well as as some of my smaller known hits, like uh, like how Friends has taught so many people English, which is almost kind of like a I feel like it's become sort of a running inside joke here that that's like my my proudest piece. <laughs> but I also have a nice piece coming up on the the Krat brothers. If there are any any parents listening for fans of the Wild Krats, I've got a twenty five year retrospective on them coming up. Oh man, you managed to squeeze that in before you left. Like that mm-hmm. was your, your that's going to be your crowning achievement besides the friend story <laughs> is is getting the crats out there. Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, thanks for joining us. As I mentioned, we are here recording actually on Monday because it's the final day of uh, nomination voting. Um, yeah, it's a strange year, not as strange as last year, but nonetheless, as we sort of head to the the final moments, I thought we would sort of maybe quickly do some final thoughts on the major categories, at least like comedy, drama, limited. And if uh, there's anything that any of you are sort of, uh, you know, seeing, uh, you know, sort of gets a little bit of heat, if, if there are any sort of final thoughts on, on where these categories might land, uh, Jazz, why don't we talk about uh, you know sort of your sort of final picks if if you have sort of a thought on comedy or drama in particular? I do. My final picks, obviously, Ted Lasso hacks. I the flight attendant are all going to get in. I think Kaminsky. I do wonder that about like some additional slots, like whether. Rutherford Falls will get in. I would love to see that get in. I saw, I mean, they had an event at the weekend and I wonder if those last minute 
like events, you know, will help voters, like, you know, the ones who haven't yet done their votes um, or cast their votes. Sorry, I can't speak English today. Um, <laughs> Sorry. It's going to have an impact. And yeah, my, my last minute thing would be wish would be to see Rutherford Falls get in and obviously Girls 5 ever because come on, that show just brought us back to the 90s and what a decade that was for music. So. Yeah, uh, but you're right. Rutherford Falls had an event at the Autry over over the weekend. Uh, they even gave free admission to people who showed up. Um, so that's sort of the 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 Peacock show that uh, you know hadn't gotten quite as much attention, of course, as as Girls Five Eva. Um, you know, partly Girls Five Eva is just a, a phenomenon, but it would be history making to get some attention for that show. So, indeed, fingers crossed there. Um, Danielle, how about you? Any sort of final thoughts or, or hopes, dreams? Yeah, I mean, I think for comedy, I mean, we talked about this, you know, last week, just the, the, the sense that it feels like there are fewer shows. And so some of the things that I hope get nominated, it seems very likely they will. Like Pen15 and Girls 5 Eva, like last year, Pen15 seems like a little bit of a long shot, you know, and then it, it didn't get nominated. Well, not last year. Sorry, two years ago. Um, and it got nominated only for writing, but this year it feels like it, it actually stands a good chance at a series nomination. So I'm excited about that. Um, and then, you know, I've been looking a little bit more closely at the drama race because, you know, two weeks ago when we were talking about it and you were like, what is the long shot that you hope gets nominated? And like, I couldn't think of one. Um, I was like, why can't I think of one? And so I started thinking about it and I was, you know, I realized that this year and maybe this is just me, I've just been gravitating more towards lighter fare than I usually do probably because of the way the world is. But, um, you know, when I think about drama, um, there are a few shows that I loved when they launched and I was writing about a lot and then I, we didn't really talk about from the, from the Emmy side of things. And so like, there are a few that I think they're not going to get nominated, but like now that they're still, I still feel like they're worth having a conversation about. And those are the shows that like, I kind of wish had taken off a little bit more. Mosquito Coast is one. I really love that version of an adaptation. Like it's not, you know, a straight adaptation. It's just, uh, it's a prequel, but it's also, they've just changed so much. Um, I really liked Clarice on CBS, another good example of like, we know the source material, but it's, they're doing something different. And those to me feel like shows like, no, they're likely not getting nominated, but I wish I had thought of them two weeks ago when you had asked me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's easy to forget about Clarice since it's, you know, broadcast network and you just don't think about Emmy voters even considering broadcast shows these days. So. I mean, yeah, we wrote about it a lot. I will say that. So hopefully some of the voters picked up what we, Elaine actually wrote a really good story that had Clarice in there um, about continuing IP for, you know, this modern audience. So, you know, maybe uh, some some other people didn't forget the way that yeah. I did. Yeah. Well, Elaine, um, what have you watched over the past year uh, that, that uh, sort of, you know, kept you going maybe during the pandemic? Did, did you sort of gravitate towards certain kinds of shows? Are, are there ones that sort of were your, uh, you know, go-tos while being stuck at home or, or anything that impressed you, surprised you, delighted you this year? So, you know, the funny thing is I don't watch 
I watch the most TV of anyone in my household, but still nothing in comparison to you guys. So uh, I always feel like I'm coming up a little short on on what the latest TV is. But I will say I I feel like there are shows that I imprinted on, like like a baby duckling just hatching. Like there are shows that I like will imprint on and then will like obsess about for a while. And like a, a show that got me through. Oh gosh, I want to say mid-pandemic, at least in the timeline, this had better be mid-pandemic because this thing had better be ending, um, was The Queen's Gambit, which I watched and then rewatched and then just delighted in because it was just so rare to see this show about this sort of awkward but high-achieving girl turned woman, and it wasn't predicated on, uh, you know, too much major trauma. Um, I mean, certainly she has her struggles, but it's not it's not predicated on anything horrific, which I feel like is rare and it's horrible to say yeah, that she rare, she, but she likes her rare. booze, you know, who doesn't? I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then it's funny because talking about broadcast, um, you know, I would love to see Superstore get some love. Like, that is a show that I have been with since the very, very beginning. And I also think it's so hard to stick the landing. And I've seen a couple of series finales this past year that I did not think stuck the landing. And I really hoped that they would, but didn't. Um, But Superstore is one that, you know, they had their big finale. You got to see all these characters go off into the world and do these things, which it almost seemed a little fantastical the way it ended um, because everybody, spoiler alert, basically got a happy ending. But it it was really cathartic to see that, um, especially after this past year, especially what real life retail workers have been through. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another show that, I mean, we have been banging the superstore drum here at Variety. So people listen to us. Come on. (laughs) Every once in a while, we have some good points. (laughs) Will this be the year superstore gets, I mean, it has to get, but yeah. It's yeah. so I mean, it's, it's last chance. I'm not optimistic. I'll, I'll be honest. I, I just, I, I think we all love it. We all watched it, but I, I'm, I'm afraid that it just didn't break through. And, you know, and we talked about this. That was one of the stories I did this year was if the show had been on Netflix, um, it'd be a different story. Uh, then, then it would probably get more of the accolades. There'd be more attention. There is that bias, uh, that that sort of prestige bias against the the broadcasters right now. So, so that's unfortunate. Um, Elaine, it's funny because uh, you know you have young kids, and I remember when my kids were about the age that yours were. There was like I had a, somewhat of a gap in my TV knowledge because I watched so much kids shows with them at the moment. So I became a scholar in Disney Channel. And, and uh, that was the time that Yo Gabba Gabba was big. And and trust me, like, you know, I became like Yo Gabba Gabba super fan number one. <laughs> so that did sort of take me away from a lot of the primetime stuff as I watched a lot of the kids stuff, which I love. And I kind of miss now that they've gotten older. But uh, do you find that you, you sort of are, you know, fanning out on a lot of the kids stuff right now? Like, what are your kids into at this moment? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, why do you think I'm writing a 25-year retrospective on the Kratz brothers? <laughs> well, that, that, that's for you. That's not for your kids. That's for you, I, I mean... know. But... <laughs> Who among us did not crush on Chris Kratz when we were children? Anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't, don't give me that look, Danielle. Um, <laughs> I, I will just, I'm very excited to read this because this, this is not something that I really grew up with. So when you said you were writing about this, I was like, I'm, I'm excited because this is, you know, there are, there are certain things fandom-wise that I'm like, oh my God, you can't tell me anything. I know everything already. 
but not this. So I'm excited. <laughs> but in terms of current TV, Camp Cretaceous, which Danielle, I know you do watch, right? You I do watch first this, season? Yes, okay, yes. yes. I feel like I watch more kids TV now than when I was an actual <laughs> that's child, a, but that's great show. Time. It's so good. It's a thrill ride. Like, everything you love about Jurassic Park, just the the constant thrills, the constantly being put in peril and having to find ways to escape these dinosaurs, is in almost every single episode of Camp Cretaceous. And, you know, kids programming does not get enough credit, but this show, this show is legit. Like, it is, you want to talk about that, that, that quote-unquote four-quadrant co-viewing, like, I, I am hooked on this show and it's, I mean, my concern is actually that it's a little too dark for my kids who are, you know, I've got a kindergartner and a toddler. Um, but apparently nothing dinosaur related is too dark for them because we've seen the entire Jurassic Park, Jurassic World uh, franchise, which some of which uh, apparently get much darker than Jurassic Park. And I wasn't prepared for that and should have prepared them. <laughs> but <laughs> no, the animation is great. Um, one thing, one question I've had about Camp Cretaceous and all of the assorted Jurassic shows, like there are a ton of Jurassic Lego shows that are on Netflix, too, um, is how many times in the history of any Jurassic of the entire Jurassic franchise, has that one iconic T-Rex roar been used? Because it's used at least, like, once per episode. And I just, yeah, I, I, I want I want. I mean, like if a you weren't leaving that. us, that would be a story yeah. that I would say you should do. <laughs> now you've given me yeah, work yeah. to do, Elaine. <laughs> Have at it, I know, that audio cue. Like, how often do they use it? Who gets the residuals from that audio cue? There, there's yeah. a lot that you can work with there, yeah. Thanks, Elaine. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime, Jess. It's a parting <laughs> But it's true. It's a, it's a great show. And if you haven't discovered it, like, absolutely, like, indulge in it. Because it's if you love that franchise, it just does it such good justice. And like Danielle said, like, I think, like, I'm watching more kids shows than I did as a kid. Well, because it's, I mean, the quality has gone up, obviously, dramatically. I mean, there are great shows. So my 11-year-old has, uh, he just re-binged Gravity Falls, which is still possibly the best kid show of all time. So, Elaine, I can't wait for your kids to get get a little bit older, and, and they're just going to dig that. Uh, Amphibia, which is on right now on Disney Channel, which is from some of the producers of Gravity Falls, is also pretty great. Um, he just started watching, uh, re-watching the new version of DuckTales, um, which, you know, again, this new version is, is you know, even more sort of sophisticated and it has a, a deep sort of mythology to it. And, and that's great, too. It's these these kids like they're living in a golden. They don't even realize it because they don't know what you know TV is, but <laughs> they're living in a golden age of, of TV. So as a side note, can I just say that I did not tell my kids that we had Disney Plus until like. <laughs> five months ago <laughs> I was like binge watching everything on Disney so Plus mean. yeah no and I was like I should tell them we have this service <laughs> that's amazing that's amazing um, I quickly want to go through my uh, predictions uh, that uh, I, I threw together and and you guys can tell me I'm crazy some some of these are a little outlandish some of them are pretty obvious but, but I thought I'd have a little bit of fun with uh, the, the categories so Starting off with comedy, um, and speaking of co-viewing, I've uh, been watching Cobra Kai with my son, uh, my, my teenage son, and uh, that's such a fun co-viewing experience. Yes, I put Cobra Kai in my top eight. 
for comedy. Why not? I don't think that's crazy at this point. I mean, I remember like when we started this, I was like, I don't know. But then as it's gone on, I don't think that's crazy because again, there are eight slots. So, and it's, it's a solid show. They've been campaigning for it. They've been very visible. We, everybody's talking about it. I mean, I don't see that as, as crazy yeah. at all. Yeah. I think they've done a great job of getting the word out. And again, that Netflix, uh, sort of bump has, has really helped them. So I got Cobra Kai, Girls 5 Eva, um, which fingers crossed. I think that's still sort of a jump ball because we're all, that's another one of those, like we all love girls five ever. We talk about it, but it is on Peacock who knows how many voters actually watched it or even know what Peacock is still. Uh, but throw that in there, uh, blackish Kaminsky method, pen 15, which one of my favorite sort of like the, the fact that pen 15 turned into an actual contender from its small, tiny origins is amazing. Uh, and then the trio, the, the obvious trio flight attendant hacks, Ted Lasso. I mean, those are the three to watch. So drama, I went ahead at number eight, because again, they've been campaigning their asses off the boys. Yeah. That's, that's one where they have really worked hard to get that into the conversation. So I think that may manage to get in on the strength of all that campaigning. Uh, this is us legacy show Lovecraft country Mandalorian pose, which I think pose is really like, you know, has, has been elevating because of that, uh, finale, uh, handmaid's tale also because of that finale, uh, season finale Bridgerton because Bridgerton and then the crown. So, so that's, those are my drama series picks. And then for limited series, we've only got five. Uh, so underground railroad, small Axe, mayor of East town, Queens gambit. And I may destroy you. Now here's where, like, I think it's, I think there's a chance I may destroy you wins. I mean, I know we're just talking nominations right now. So there's a long period of time before we get to, the actual, uh, you know, voting for, for f- final, but at least right now, um, you know, Queen's Gambit seemed like the shoe in a couple months ago, but a lot of people, I mean, I may destroy you just won the Peabody, uh, BAFTA. It sort of has re-entered the conversation, even though it's, it's a year old. So I think this is a more, uh, sort of competitive category, uh, than it may have looked four or five months ago. I and mean, jazz, what do you think? I, my thought, though, is so the Queen's Gambit is really strong on the crafts. Like the production design is incredible. The score is great. The costume design. So will that ed- help edge, like give that the edge over I May Destroy You? Because people love I May Destroy You as a series, but like crafts wise, it's got, you know, I mean, it has got some great artisans behind it, but. If, you know, I'm seeing more on the Queen's Gambit than I've seen on I May Destroy It. I don't know. I could be completely, like, wrong. But if you're going to vote down the line, you're going to go Queen's Gambit. You're not going to switch. Right? Yeah, I mean... It's just a thought. I don't know. It, it probably, at the end of the day, still is Queen's Gambit. But I, I do think it's it's probably the, clo- it's the closest race of the three majors, I, I would probably say. I'm curious. So, so by the way, I have an idea. Variety. Sorry, Elaine, you can't participate in this because you're, you're leaving <laughs> us. But um, the next couple of months, 
we've managed to produce uh, a TV movie because I think it's so easy to get into the TV movie category because there are no TV movies. We could all be walking away with like an Emmy nomination next year. I don't know how we're going to do this, how we're going to pull this off, but maybe we do like a movie version of this podcast. We get nominated like this, you know, it becomes very meta. But I mean, there's just there's no very little competition on the TV. Movie I mean, side. podcast adaptations are so popular. So the real question yes. is like, who do you cast to play you in the podcast adaptation? <laughs> That's, I mean, th- that's what it's going to boil down to. You know, you can't, you have to get somebody recognizable. You can't just get any nobody or it won't make the waves it needs to make. Oh, so I can't play myself is what you're saying. His, his you're rock recognizable. stand <laughs> He maybe could. Wait, we could use his rock stand in and he could like do the voiceover and just. Oh, <laughs> we can all use the rock stand in. <laughs> By the way, when uh, we go uh, on vacation, I'm going to use that rock stand in, in the house. So I think people will like... Like Home Alone style. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the rock is going to protect this house. So FYI. Hey, Mike. I've said too much. I may have to edit that part out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone driving by sees a rock in the window. They know exactly whose house that is. Yeah. <laughs> I did have a friend that put hers in her window and then... Um, got a call from her ma- her apartment manager that was like, that's scaring some of the neighbors. Can you remove that, please? <laughs> and so she did. I guess they didn't know what yeah. it was. So, yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, everyone, now on to July 13, when uh, truth will all be revealed and we move on to phase two and Danielle has to scramble and, and start putting out more extra editions. So enjoy. And we'll be doing a- more podcasts. And we'll be doing more podcasts. We'll be back. Awards HQ will be back. Um, everything will uh, we'll, we'll be gearing up for, for another round. So, Elaine, we're going to miss you. I'm going to miss you guys. Best to you. Keep in touch, obviously. And thank you so much for joining us on this edition. Danielle and Jazz, we'll see you after the 13th. It's Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Michael Schneider. So, would New Girl have been darker without FCC restrictions? Does True American have actual rules? Will there be a reunion? Yes, no, and maybe, say New Girl creator and showrunner Elizabeth Merriweather and cast members Zoe Deschanel, Max Greenfield, Jake Johnson, Lamorne Morris, and Hannah Simone. The cast and creator reunited for Variety's TV Fest, and I had the pleasure of asking them all sorts of questions about New Girl, its legacy and popularity with a new generation of viewers, and how their characters, Jess, Schmidt, Nick, Winston, and Cece, might have fared during the pandemic. We discussed favorite moments from the series, things the censors wouldn't let you see, true American rules, what the show means to them now, and yes, whether a reunion episode or movie will ever happen. Now, direct from the Variety TV Fest, here's that panel. So I'm excited right now to introduce to you our panelists. We got them all right here. Please meet the creator and showrunner of New Girl, Liz Merriweather. Liz, welcome. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Absolutely. (laughs) Of course, you know her as the New Girl herself, Jess, Zoe Deschanel. Zoe, welcome. Thank you so much. Very happy to be here. He was... Schmidt himself. Later, we discovered he was Winston Schmidt, believe it or not. Max Greenfield. Max, welcome. Believe it or not, I had a dream about Jake last night, too, but we'll get to that later. Okay, <laughs> let's, let's compare dreams. 
<laughs> Speaking of Jake, of course, he played Nick on the show. Jake Johnson. Jake, welcome. I would like to hear your dream, Michael. I don't want to hear Max's. I'm sure his is disgusting. But yeah. yours will be nice to hear about at some point. <laughs> well, it was by the way. Mine's not dirty at all. So. Great. <laughs> You know, Max, how about yours? No, yes, I was. It, well, it was by a lake. It was moonlit. Uh, we'll talk about <laughs> we'll get, it. We'll get to that. Let's let's bring in Winston right now, aka Prank Sinatra, aka Theodore K. Mullins, of course, Mr. Lamorne Morris. Lamorne, welcome. How you doing, my friend? Cheers. Oh, I got, you got the cocktail. There you That's go. Right. That's right. I do. Thank you. <laughs> late night with Lamorne. <laughs> Every day is late night with Lamorne. We can't forget she played Cece on the show, the one and only Hannah Simone. Hannah, welcome. Hi, thank you. So it's been three years since the show went off the air. And coincidentally, of course, season seven was a three-year jump. So can we all agree that maybe every three years we'll have another new girl sort of check in, see how everyone's doing. Let's just <laughs> do this every three years. Uh, Liz, I'm going to put that on you to organize. Uh, can, can we make this happen? If I'm organizing it, then it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> you guys all have like a group chat, right? Do you, you still sort of keep in close contact? What, what's what's sort of the communication like these days? How often do you all uh, chat with each other? I think we do all chat, but like kind of separately. I feel like the group chat that everybody hears about is primarily the male members of the cast, maybe. <laughs> Damon. It's Damon. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, that kind of faded during the pandemic. I think there were too many weird uh, videos and pictures, and we all just took a break from sending each other Instagram stuff. I but everybody's still in touch. It's nice. Pandemic sort of got a little weird for all of you. Um, yeah, Damon's disgusting on text. It's enough. We've seen so many parts of Damon that we didn't want to see. Too much. Uh, well, my texts with Damon are so family friendly. It's the most like PG, I, I completely different text. experience. Yeah, yeah. completely <laughs> different experience of Damon. Just he like, hasn't opened up to you guys yet. <laughs> no. Let's keep him closed. <laughs> yeah, there's a lock there. There's a lock. <laughs> Something to see. Well, speaking of the the, the pandemic uh, and, and just in general, the past couple of years, there, there has been an upswing also as, as people have rediscovered New Girl. Uh, they've binged it. What what do you? How are you hearing from the fans these days, Zoe? Are you sort of uh, seeing uh, uh, increased attention right now to, to New Girl? Um, definitely, it's it's nice because we're I think we're available on a lot of streaming platforms, so I think a lot of people are discovering the show and binge watching it which is really nice like a, a whole new way of discovering the show i know a lot of people who watched it when it was when it was out you know on fox and then they kind of rediscovered it you know on netflix or you know another streaming service and um and then also like kids like my friend's daughter is now really into new girl she's like 13 years old i think it's great it's a lot of uh new fans kind of discovering which is cool have any of you gone back and, and watched any old episodes? Have you uh, binged a few and, and sort of revisited uh, some of the past episodes? Lamorne, you're shaking your head? Every day. Every day. <laughs> I want to remember these folks because they don't like hanging out in person. Uh, so I go back and I watch and I reminisce on good times. I'm not 100% convinced that all of these people have seen the whole show. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen every episode. I've seen, I've seen every episode at least one time. <laughs> Everyone. Do you all have that situation where people come up and ask you very intricate questions about the show and you're like, I don't remember <laughs> that at all. I Oddly, I get a lot of questions from Damon. At the, at, on the <laughs> about 
about he he's rediscovered the show and watched it several times over and asked what was this episode you know we did this and i i i I don't have much of a recollection but he's been very interested (laughs) i uh my friend's 14 year old daughter asked for a script uh and and i was like well uh, sure like what (laughs) what script do you want and immediately heard back pepperwood (laughs) 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 um and i pepperwood's a classic pepperwood's a classic I had to explain like how much everything changed from like the, the shooting draft to like what she saw on screen. Um, I also so remember I you up. were like the most tired I've ever seen you on that episode. Cause I remember you came <laughs> one day and I was like, this girl needs to, to take a nap. That was a, yeah, it was the middle of the second season, but um, yeah, there's, a, I think there a lot of young, I found a lot of young people kind of like, I've heard from a lot of like younger people rewatching it and, um, uh, which is, which is, uh, you know, always exciting and, um, disturbing. I'm like 13, are you old enough? <laughs> <laughs> I guess compared to like what else is out there right now, it's probably fine. Yeah. Well, some things just maybe go over their head, but they can appreciate the the bonds and the relationships of of the characters. Some things went over Max's head, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I still can't watch the first Justin Long episode. (laughs) (laughs) You get too too confused, (laughs) excited. You don't want to see that sweet physical comedy that Jack Tripper's (laughs) had? Oh my gosh. Well, Jake, I want to ask you in particular, when, when we talk about what fans are sort of gravitating to right now, there is this thirst, this, this, this thirst for Nick. Like, uh, it's, it's sort of this Jake Johnson, Nick thirst trap going on. What, what do you make of this? this, this internet obsession? With, with- oh, man, this is the best. I'm so excited for the answer. <laughs> you know, it's Me the body. Too. It's the body. <laughs> You know, Max thinks the the male body is about going to CrossFit. And I'm like, no, the Lord made a body a certain way, and we're supposed to take care of it with sleep, cheese, some bread. And I think what's happened is the younger generations of Americans in the world understand what uh, male perfection is. So you know, I'm really excited. The pandemic shut everything down. I think everybody added 10 pounds of fat, and then I looked normal. <laughs> It's also the body. I just want to say also, yeah. That's how you work it, I guess. (laughs) It's cut off sweatpants with a sports jersey tucked in. It's flip flops and it's socks with flip flops. Are you wearing cut off off shorts right now, Jake? (laughs) Stand up, stand up. Yes. Oh, <laughs> Zoe, your call was nearly perfect. The shirt is tucked in for some reason. And when you said that, I was hoping Lamorne or Max wouldn't ask me to stand because I got embarrassed. It's how do you? It's how do you say you're a dad without saying you're a dad? <laughs> I, for me, like the belt is the most upsetting. <laughs> Yeah, the no, belt's not those, the, the belt's not had those cutoffs when we were shooting. We yeah. had those. And you wore them regularly. Well, the nice thing about after a man turns about 27 years of age is his body doesn't change that much. So you don't necessarily need new clothes. I'm not going to grow anymore. I shouldn't get too fat or too skinny. I'm kind of in this zone. So until an article of clothing falls apart, <laughs> drape the frame and let's go. Look good, feel good. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I When people ask me to describe uh, your physical appearance, I always say in the 
zone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes perfect sense. I can't um, say now if the internet's going to melt over all of this or just be uh, even even more sort of confused over their their obsession with with. Uh, I'm going to go with confused. <laughs> also, I wished I had that way of like having my own body image to be like. 27, still the same. Nothing's changing. <laughs> what a way to look at it. Amazing. Bottle that and sell it. That delusion is incredible. <laughs> Liz, uh, what, what do people sort of ask you about the, the most now uh, in terms of the, the burning, lingering questions uh, as they rewatch the show or as they binge it? I haven't been asked a lot of questions. I've just been so, like, just people kind of like, thanking me for like giving them some kind of comfort. <laughs> and, like, I feel like the show has been, uh, the show feels like uh, there's a warmth to it. I think that maybe people have need it right now. Um, but that's like, sorry, did that come out really douchey? I'm like, people just thank me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it did. It did. <laughs> yeah, that was rough. That was terrible. Um I, I, I want to stand up and show you my belt, but I'm not wearing one. Um, no, I I mean, I think uh, there's a real, I feel like there's a sense with the show there always has been of like, you know, that that these characters are actually friends, that like these characters are like, you're actually, you're hanging out with your own friends when you watch the show. And so I think people always want to hear about, you know, whether or not, like what you guys were like when you were shooting it and you know and I'm always like I don't know I was I was like hiding in my office <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but it is that, that but you bring up a good point it is sort of friend goals you see in all these relationships I mean I I you know look at the 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 you know Nick and Schmidt relationship and and you know that that touching moment in the finale when Nick finally admits that he loves Schmidt and, and <laughs> yeah there's like friend goals for for all of these characters, but for any of you, there was what? a lot of debate actually about if if Jake had already told Max that I shouldn't say Jake and Max. I'm sorry, Nick and uh, Schmidt. If you can say you can say, you can say Jake and Max, <laughs> there was debate about whether or not that had already happened in the writers' room, and I think on set. And I feel like maybe we messed up, and maybe there was one other episode where Nick tells Schmidt he loves him, but it was in the trailer. It was in our trailer. <laughs> <laughs> it was when Max won a Madden game. It was, it was definitely. It was probably after our, after our first Super Bowl. I love you, man. I Well, there was that three-year gap, or who knows? Like you know, and that's one of the big questions: is what are some of the adventures that we never got to see during that that gap in time? What's canon, and then what does everyone sort of have in their mind may have happened during during those months and years uh, that that we we didn't get a chance to see. We can't um, really tell you that just yet because we are planning a reunion season. So I just want to be the first to put that out there. Liz has already started writing it. Um, what's important to note is that I will not be in the reunion season. <laughs> we got Damon! Yeah, yeah, Damon, yeah. God damn it! <laughs> What's weird is that we all are look a lot older in the reunion season, which happens before the last season. Cool. It's yeah. just kind of weird, but it's cool. <laughs> it's cool. We all had a lot of plastic surgery between <laughs> in that time. And also, you get the you have the new Becky from Roseanne on this season too. Along, I'm going to be the new Becky and the old Becky. <laughs> Speaking of sort of, where are the characters now? Uh, 
a lot of questions about, you know, imagining what it would be like for, for these friends during the pandemic, especially when they're not able to, to sort of interact with each other. And, you know, I, I like to imagine Schmidt would be off sanitizing everything. You know, he would have been this. This would have been a tough year for him. Uh, or, uh, or would it be the year that like everything he was like thinking would happen came true? <laughs> That's true. That's true. Like it turns out Schmidt was right. I mean, Max, yeah. what, how do you think Schmidt would have handled this past year? I had a lot of people asking me that question and I wanted to just be like, can you talk to Liz? <laughs> I honestly, her will be so much better than mine. I think you asked me, like, I was like, shoot, he was like, can you just like answer questions for people about what Schmidt's doing during oh the pandemic? God. And I was like, I was way too like underneath a blanket on my couch to like be able to do that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was actually surprised because I forgot that we had done a quarantine episode where um, they, you know, Max, uh, sorry, Schmidt puts uh, uh, Cece and, and Nick uh in quarantine together and um (laughs) we actually we saw it coming so there's a lot of like saran wrap over the door um I don't know I mean I kind of feel like our show was essentially about five people who never left their house and always like like you know hung out together so I think our characters would actually be like pretty happy (laughs) just like hanging out um but then somebody would die maybe (laughs) (laughs) Probably Damon. Probably Damon would die. Contractually. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I was gonna say this is a contract thing. (laughs) I feel like Schmidt, I feel like Schmidt would have gotten like would really his like leadership uh uh would really come would really like blossom. Like he would become like the leader of like cleaning the whole place and like, you know, just really like bossing everybody around about what to do. And that Nick would be like really afraid of getting it. Um, but then but then ultimately like Schmidt would get it. <laughs> Nick would also be the prepper, right? I mean, he'd have like yeah. all the, the toilet paper and, and everything all but all of the like wrong stuff, you know, and like or everything like expired and like or you'd have that toilet paper that like disintegrated when you touched it. <laughs> <laughs> and, then and, in like, the end, and like Jess would have like toilet paper that had like pictures on it, you know, <laughs> like like gag toilet paper. <laughs> Winston would have homemade toilet paper. Winston's selling to homemade toilet paper on Etsy, like artisanal. <laughs> yeah, like it turns out he's been doing that for years. <laughs> Quietly. Uh-oh. It, it he's turned been selling out, toilet paper that gives people COVID because that's his prank. <laughs> well, turns out COVID is is Winston's greatest prank of all time. There's yeah. no COVID. It's, it's too big. It's too big. It's too big. <laughs> the World Health Organization like figures out that it all goes back to Frank Sinatra. <laughs> prank. <laughs> and, and, and what about CC? What? Uh, I mean, CC was always just like a little bit like smarter than everyone. <laughs> everybody else. <laughs> Hannah, what do you think? I feel like you like you like maybe you were somebody who like got it early and had the antibodies. Yeah, I knew I was immune. That yeah. was fine. Right. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. I'm watching the show of everybody else freak out. Free yeah. entertainment. Yeah, yeah. Maybe CC was the, the the one who went into the trials and actually we got the vaccine thanks to her early. Oh yeah. <laughs> she was definitely like in the trial. Yeah, early, early vaccine adopter. <laughs> I would imagine there would be some weird like Schmidt CC 
sexting with masks, you know, with various <laughs> with various N95 masks. <laughs> but but then we would end up cutting it. <laughs> How often? Yeah, standards How and practices would would right. come in on that. Isn't that one. weird, crazy German sex toy thing? Did that ever make it in? Well, we weren't allowed to say vibrator, so we had to say self pleasure uh, machine or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing in uh in the 10 years that the show <laughs> from when the show started to what's like what's on television now they don't yeah. they didn't let us say vibrator you know and thank they, god because america wouldn't <laughs> handle it yeah liz, liz how different or would have been different if, if new girl had been on say a streaming service where you didn't have those those kind of restrictions do you think you would have done it much differently or or I mean, it, I yeah, totally. I mean, in some ways, I think the show is what it is because of you know it was on network, and like I think there was a lot of restrictions to sort of what we could do and say. And I mean, also, I always say this, but I really believe it. Like, how much has changed in television in the ten years that it's been on is like really incredible, and also just in the culture and. I mean, you go back and watch like the earlier episodes and there's some things where I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> like, what did I do? Um, but I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I think we, w- to our credit, I think we, we did always try to sort of like change, like, like change the show with what we saw around us and kind of like try to keep up. But yeah, I mean, I think if this show were on a streaming service, it would have been like a completely different show um, and yeah. probably uh, probably a bit darker, I would imagine. I would imagine that uh, it would have gone to like some darker, <laughs> darker places. I remember we weren't allowed to say like we yeah. weren't allowed to say the word penis more than once. And I was like, what's the difference between saying yeah. it once and saying it three times? Like yeah. um, in that there was a bachelorette party episode. <laughs> They had, to have, they had all these like background actors who were supposed to be going penis, penis, and we had, we had to have them go penis. <laughs> just I didn't remember that. Oh my we god! Probably would have thought Jane. These will be the clips, by the way, they used to promote this new girl. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who who on the streaming uh, version of New Girl would do the the full frontal nudity first? So that's the other. Oh, question. that's interesting. Definitely Lamorne, I think. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot floating around on the internet already. So I figure, okay. <laughs> Liz, Liz, what was you mentioned a couple of things that you sort of uh, the back and forth with standards. Was there anything that you ultimately ended up on the, the cutting room floor that uh, you you haven't uh, mentioned before that we never got to see? Oh my god, the there's so much on the cutting room floor. I feel like we could have shot like we could we actually could do like a full other uh, season <laughs> stuff that we cut, um, which uh, you know was bad planning on my part, but, um, no, there was a whole section. I think the big, I think the biggest one I remember was just, there was a whole thing with, um, June Diane Raphael plays, uh, Jess's best friend and, um, Schmidt goes to her kind of to like, try to figure out how to pleasure a woman. Right. Or something. And they were like, she got out like a diagram of a vagina and like the, the, the original scripted section, we could say none of it. It was like a, like a CIA report. That's like, everything's redacted (laughs) except for like one word. So we just had to come up with like 
all of these euphemisms. And it, I actually think it turned out to be like much funnier, but it was, it was a really funny moment shooting it because there was a, the woman from standards actually came to set and um, we had to like, it was just like us talking to Max about like, say, like if he could say the word like churro and how suggestive, like <laughs> he could, he could be when he says churro or something like, and like, could he like use his fingers? And, I mean, it was, it was like a real uh, shit show, but I do think like some of that stuff actually ends up helping comedy. I think some restraints force things, you know, force you to be creative. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is a lot of stuff that we, that ended up not, you know, being on the show probably for better. <laughs> Do you guys remember anything like that? I don't, I, I'm trying to remember, but. I remember I wasn't allowed to, um, I wasn't allowed to um, have a sausage <laughs> and say the word penis. Like I could either have the sausage. <laughs> I, oh no, I couldn't say the word dong and, and I was supposed to have a sausage. <laughs> Like an actual sausage, and then I couldn't be like dong, and the sausage had to be like either or, and that was I remember that very specifically. Yeah, we have a we have a, a real classy. It was a real classy show. I don't know why uh, we haven't been remembered as the classiest show. <laughs> it was quite a classy show, and I want to go through and and sort of. As all of you remember moments, I know you're asked all the time favorite moments, but but I'm curious if there's one moment that sort of constantly creeps into your mind, just randomly you'll be thinking like about something else and suddenly a moment from New Girl pops into your head. Is, is there something that sort of has stayed with you, uh, you know, not the, the past three years, the past 10 years? Hannah, is there a, a moment from the show that sort of sticks with you that when you think about New Girl, this kind of immediately comes to mind? I mean, I think the one that I get asked about a lot is what was it like when Prince was on the show? And so many people had stories about how he was this incredible ping pong player. And I have never played ping pong. Um, and we had to shoot the tag uh, where he and I played ping pong against each other. And I remember when we went to shoot it, on, I feel like it was like the first or second take. I mean, Liz was there, so maybe she remembers, but I, it's what's in the episode. Like I hit it and it went straight past him. And I, I feel like he was genuinely surprised, but no more surprised than I was in that moment. And then I was like, that's it. We're done. I don't want to do it again. <laughs> that's, that's as good as it's ever going to get. Um, but I remember that, being That really was also nervous. like five in the morning, if I recall. They did yeah. that, the absolute last thing and then like had to basically wake you up. Yeah, the sun was fully up at that point. It was the longest day ever. And we're shooting it at like a, what was it, like a crematorium or something? Like super bizarre. No, it was Uh, a house. house. It was just a mansion. (laughs) (laughs) It was like a creepy, I don't know, there was something near it or around it that was famous in that area where there was just like a nice house in Altadena. No, no, there there was something near it that everybody else had shot. It was definitely not a crematorium. It was a beautiful mansion in a really nice town. <laughs> I've never been into a really nice house, I guess. You I was like, they burn bodies Anna? here. You were going through some personal stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like that twisted that so memory. Nice. <laughs> There were burning bodies in the back. But... <laughs> there were burning bodies. I don't remember those. I just remember beating Prince in one take and then being them done. Yeah. <laughs> 
and that is a bucket list thing. I mean, when when you like, you know, remember like just what you've done in your life playing ping pong with Prince. That's that's still something not many people can say. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Max, how about you? What uh, what kind of comes to mind when uh, you reminisce about New Girl? I don't think I'll ever have another job or long-term experience in my life where I'll laugh as hard as I did. Um, we laughed on that show in a way that was, that just, it brought us, the daily brought us to tears. And that is not something that you get that often. And I think we had it so, it happened so much on that show that you thought, oh, I guess the rest of your life will just laugh like this. You go, oh no, that's not actually true. Um, But we, there were just so many moments where something would happen or one of us would torture the other one or three of us would torture someone else. And I just remember laughing in a way that was so guttural and where hair and makeup would have to come in and redo all of our makeup because I'd be crying. Um, and it just, I remember the show in that way and remember how much fun that was and how enjoyable that was. And really often we'll come back to those moments every so often. And some, and sometimes just thinking about that will make me laugh in a way that, uh, that will even surprise me. Lamorne, the entire finale is predicated on, on a Winston prank, which I still think about to this day. Like that's, that's how they ended the show. They didn't have to move out of the, the, the loft after all of this. It was all prank Sinatra. Talk a little bit about your memories of, of playing Winston and just like wrapping, wrapping up the show that way. Well, let's unpack it. Let's just start from the beginning. Who is Winston? Who is Winston? That was, big question. Start that was a big question from the beginning. Okay. We had take no idea. Lauren, take your time. Take your time. We had no idea. Let's take the landscape for a second. You start here. Hero's journey. Who is this hero? Anti-hero. Nobody knows who the fuck he is. Sorry, that's word. Sorry. <laughs> His ascent to the top was predicated on what we were doing as a cast. All right. And I do remember very, just like Max said, we would goof off a lot and we would laugh a lot on set, which was something that I couldn't help because, like he said, the cast was so funny. So we would always do these bits in between takes and sometimes they would make it in. And we got very, very lucky because for a while we were we didn't know who this character was. And uh, I think with playing with each other and being silly and being weird, the writers kind of said, man, this is like a cool bit, possibly. And they got they started writing weirder and weirder and weirder things for for my character to do. And initially, I'll be honest with you, this is not a joke. I was thinking to myself, what the fuck do they have me doing? Like, this is so (laughs) stupid. And then you would watch the episode and you would go. That's, that's actually pretty funny. It's actually really funny. And so I started leaning more into it and fully committing to it. It got to the point where some of the guys in the cast would egg me on to, to do stupid things. No. And, uh, yes. Yeah. And, it would, and so it became <laughs> fun for me to play this character. And I would actually read episodes at the table read, you know, anticipating, you know, really obnoxiously weird things for my character to do. So I enjoyed it. I, I definitely enjoyed it. So it ending on uh, him playing a big prank is kind of a full circle 
um, to how it started, not really knowing what his purpose was in the in the loft to kind of that being it. Yeah, I yeah. think. I have to say that was our writer, uh, Berkeley Johnson. Uh, mm-hmm. That was his pitch in the writer's room. And it was like, <laughs> the kind, it was the kind of pitch that like, he said it like really quietly and then everybody just got really, <laughs> got really quiet. And then like, it was immediately like, yes! <laughs> like, it was like, it was kind of the thing we'd been like, uh, waiting for so uh, you know shout out to berkeley johnson <laughs> liz real quick sort of the decision to do that that quick sort of flash forward seeing them a couple years later uh them playing to american as, as uh, you know a bunch of families winston and Allie have five kids i mean so i don't know how far in the future this is but Not far. Uh, there, there was a lot to unpack in that brief clip that we see in the finale uh talk about sort of deciding how much of that sort of uh sort of future image uh, you guys wanted to put into that finale? Well, that I think that was uh, Dave Finkel and Brett Baer who ran the show with me. I think it was their pitch, but it was, I thought, you know, I was always the one who kind of wanted to go for like cheesy emotional stuff on the show. And, and, uh, and when Dave and Brett pitched that, I was like, is that too emotional? <laughs> you know, and then they were both, they were both like, no, like, and, and I think in seeing it, it was, it was like the moment when I really like, I felt like I teared up, you know, watching the, um, if I had a heart, I would have <laughs> teared up. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, and I, I, I mean, I just, th- this show is, you know, I mean, hearing Lamorne talk about his character, but I mean, it's really about these actors and like these, these, uh, the people that, are on this zoom with me and like it was always about them and how good they were together and and how creative and funny they were and like writing to them and like just seeing what they were doing and I think that you I mean the show for better or worse there's like some really bad episodes and there's some really good episodes but you like you love these people like you love these characters and that's like to these actors credit and um I think we're curious which episode do you think is bad uh beginning let's really get in <laughs> that pilot was missing a little charm you know what <laughs> i really feel like the pilot was missing something uh no i think uh i i mean i would say that the um the flash forward was just like because you just want to know i mean like it was really hard it was even hard for me to like to like let them go a little bit and i was definitely ready you know after seven years to like move <laughs> to like move on but like I felt like it was very hard to to kind of not know what happened in their lives and so I think we just really wanted to show and show like that everyone was happy and okay just because I think you really do fall in love with these characters um bad episode I think that bachelorette episode where everyone's chanting penis is pretty bad (laughs) that one was a little bit rough but it still had good moments. Except that, yeah, I think that though that is when uh, Jake is in like a yellow sweatsuit, and that that maybe like that that may have saved the episode, but I don't know if it was enough. Everyone wants to see Jake in a yellow sweatsuit. <laughs> Everybody. So there you go. In, in hindsight, for all the the, the Nick uh, thirst uh, thirsty Nick fans, they, there's something for them. So I I didn't know about this thirst Nick thirst trap thing. I didn't know what? about that. So what? No, I no. It's, every, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Sorry, I guess I I'm not. You know, I'm I'm not up with the people. Uh, Run out. 
<laughs> Speaking of the thirst trap himself, Jake, uh, what, what are some of you the things that uh, you still uh, you know sort of gravitate to and think about uh, when you reminisce about your time on New Girl? You know, I don't want to steal Max's answer, but that um, I think he stole mine because we did one of these before, and I said that first, so I'm going <laughs> to say mine again. <laughs> uh, but honestly, the when I look back at the show, it's we laughed together so much. Everybody on this, the cast, we really created our own language at times. And there were times where you were doing the material, but we were there for so many hours that the main goal, like if Zoe and I are doing a scene together and she's off camera, I'm trying to make her laugh and she's trying to make me laugh. And if I'm seeing, you know, if I'm doing a scene and I see the three other people off camera, I really wanted to make them laugh. And I would feel like I did a good job as an actor if the castmates after would be like, that was really funny, even if the behavior was really bad. Like when we say we egged on Lamorne, we would egg him on to do really bad behavior, but it would also be really funny. So there was a lot of it that, you know, Max is right. I haven't experienced it on other jobs, but I feel like Liz partly loved us. And then was we were partly the kids who were annoying her a lot at work. And that led to this feeling of like, wow, Video Village is really annoyed, but they use this stuff. So it created a vibe that we were allowed to mess with each other and try to make each other laugh because we might hit something really funny. So I don't remember a lot of the, when people will come up in this era and talk about a specific moment, because there were so many on set that I just remember cry laughing about. And I will have memories of somebody doing some bit off camera or even during press that I'm like, man, that was so funny and fun. We and also had an amazing I, crew that would laugh. And yeah, I feel crew, like would also so egg us on. I mean, Casey, Joey, Rizzoli, Trent. There were some unbelievably funny people who were in all of our inside jokes. So if I did a take and it was really bad, camera operators would pretend to be sleeping. So I would look like our sound guys would be like, I'm like, well, everybody here is in on a joke and it's really funny. So I miss that a lot. What's interesting is you try to bring that to another show. You try to bring that to other jobs. And it does not work early on. Oh, they are no. not having it. <laughs> you instantly look it. like a crazy person if I yes. like if I like talk about the AD's pants and I'm like, look at what the assistant director is wearing tight denim. And everyone goes, easy. And I'm like, it was a different show. <laughs> Oh, ask that guy when he was in Miami what he used to do to party. And everyone goes, take it easy. <laughs> He's got <laughs> a problem. Say your lines and Over. shut up. <laughs> and Zoe, how, how about you? When you think about the show and reminisce about New Girl, what, what kind of comes to mind? Yeah, it's so funny because Hannah kind of touched on it and then you guys all were talking about it. But I just remember our first season. Um, I think it was like one of our first episodes. And I remember... Um, we had a sound woman. Um, I think her name was Val. Do you remember her? And she was holding the boom and she was, I remember the boom was shaking and I'm like, what's going on? And I looked over and she was like laughing so hard that the boom was shaking. And I was like, Oh, this is kind of special. Cause I had, I mean, when I started new girl, I had, I mean, I started working when I was like 16 or 17 so I had done a lot of movies at that point and, you know, a lot of movies that I had an amazing experience on and, you know, really kind of special experiences. But this one had just on the 
between the cast and the writers and the crew, it was just such an incredible group of people who were all so funny. And there was, again, yeah, there was so much joking around, so much making each other laugh. I felt like everyone was my family and we had kind of a family dynamic. Um, and again, I mean, I saw all these folks more than my family <laughs> um, for those seven years. Um, and so I definitely feel like the dynamic between all of us was really special. Um, I, like a lot of my favorite memories are things that kind of happened off screen. But yeah, no, I mean, so many funny, cool memories. Anyway, bye. <laughs> I mean, remembering the the, the show was an instant hit. I mean, it, it came on and, and uh, you know, boom, it was it was a phenomenon. I will just add that there was a billboard of New Girl, like a building, a building with New Girl, um, like a poster on the side of it that was near my house at the time. And I remember driving and <laughs> to work one morning and it was rush hour. And I was like, I was like sitting in rush hour traffic. And all of a sudden I feel this like, like on my windshield and I'm like, ah, what happened? And there was a guy and he's like, ah! and he, he started, <laughs> he starts banging and then he starts pointing at the, um, the building. Oh, and I, I was like, ran a Oh guy my over. God. No, it would have been, that would have been really been bad. Staring at yourself. <laughs> yeah. He just start. he saw me somehow and recognized me without makeup, which is incredible. Cause I, I don't look the same. Um, and, <laughs> and, um, he was like pointing at the, um, the building and it was, it was a big building. It was kind of like, a, it was a surreal experience. <laughs> to have that happen. Real quick, uh, True American, this is the, the question when I asked uh, the internet, what's your burning question? Of course, their, their burning question is, will we ever see the full official rules of True American? And... Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I know people have put uh, sort of their take on the rules. You can find those all over the internet, but but Liz uh, is... is do official rules exist somewhere? No. <laughs> no, no, they, they don't. Um, but I mean, that's what, you know, we, I want to see other people's rules. And um, uh, I, I, uh, I, it makes, it always makes me smile. Like, like hearing people tell me about different ways that they've played it. And yeah, um, yeah. I don't. Intrigue. Remember. It creates yeah. intrigue, right? It's kind of yeah. like mysterious. Yeah, yeah. And they all know how it starts. So at least when you yell JFK, exactly. and also they know the floor is lava. Yeah. So. The amount of drinking that we show <laughs> is probably not safe. Right. So if you are a 13 or 14-year-old watching this show, like, I just want you to know that it was iced tea in the whiskey bottle. <laughs> And it was water in all the beer cans. So we had, it was like straight water. It wasn't even fizzy water. So Speak for yourself. we didn't get crazy. Oh yeah. I was going to say on. like there, it's impossible that, that I, was very close I, to I the didn't know what was in those bottles, but uh, yeah. <laughs> what was the name of the beer? Heisler. What was that? Heisler. Heisler. Those Heislers were filled to the brim. Don't you guys, do you guys see Heisler on other shows now? Like whenever, yeah. when I watch other shows, I'm always like, and then they're drinking a Heisler beer. I'm like, that's our beer. But it, I've seen our bar on plenty of shows at this point now. Like, <laughs> man, they really are. 20th is getting, <laughs> they are using the hell out of these sets and props. 
But as we see in the flash forward, the family edition uh, of, of True American, they're they're chugging root beer, so you, you can like you know ch- chug the root beer. That's allowed as well. So but I will say, I've seen a lot of fans that would send me photos of like and like tag me and stuff of them just blacked out and wasted and <laughs> doing very dangerous things. So we don't condone that. Um, <laughs> oh God! Have fun. And there you go, the reunion of the cast and creator of New Girl. And after the break, filmmaker and godfather of Harlem star Forrest Whitaker on losing his passion for acting and what brought him back. From Los Angeles, this is Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. And we're back. It's the Award Circuit Podcast, and I'm Michael Schneider. As Forrest Whitaker received the Newport Beach Film Festival Lifetime Achievement Award last month, I talked to the legendary actor and filmmaker to discuss rediscovering his spark and look back on nearly 40 years in Hollywood. Whitaker told me he was finding no joy in his work, but along came the Netflix holiday movie Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, to bring back a little magic. Meanwhile, Whitaker is focused on portraying real-life crime boss Bumpy Johnson in Epix's Godfather of Harlem, which returns for the second half of the second season on August 8. Originally, he shares, he was only going to be a part of the series as a producer, but he decided to take on the role and calls it a great journey. The series explores the crime boss's life in the 1960s, including his relationships with Malcolm X and Congressman Adam Clayton Powell, played by Giancarlo Esposito and his family. I spoke to Whitaker about the show and also his upcoming role playing the father of Aretha Franklin in the upcoming big screen biopic Respect. We began by discussing how he first got involved with Godfather of Harlem. Well, originally I was approached by uh, Mark Kwan, uh, Smith and uh, James Atchison. They came to me with an idea about doing something about Bumpy Johnson. And um, we started to look at his life and, this, and we realized that there was a period like in the 60s that was really relevant. Um, his relationship with Malcolm X and his relationship uh, with Adam Clayton Powell. And so uh, we decided to develop out of there. And so we went to a writer, uh, and that was with uh, Chris um, Brancato, and uh, decided to, uh, to embark on it. At first, I was just in it as a direct as a producer. But uh, later, I decided uh, to be able to play the character, and, and it was a great journey from there. Well, as you started to do your research about Bumpy Johnson, what, what sort of intrigued you? What, what made you think, maybe I want to play this guy? This is, this is someone who, you know, we, we all know Malcolm X. We all know Adam Clayton Powell. But, you know, maybe Bumpy Johnson wasn't as well known in, in the public consciousness. So what did you sort of learn as you were doing your research and, and sort of got into preparing for this? Um, I didn't understand the complexity of the man. Originally, I knew that he was a, a mobster and a drug dealer. Um, I didn't realize his relationships with his family, how he dealt with his children. I didn't understand. He was a master chess player. He was a poet that was published. He's uh, a strategist. He was one of the few people that was able to interface from Harlem into like the uh, Italian mafia and work with them to be able to move things forward. And so that was really interesting. But honestly, I think the thing that was most interesting was like going on a journey with him where you see this man who comes out of prison and uh, who's been kind of pushed upon by the world and like uh, violent in his own life. And he starts to come, become more conscious. I think what we watch and as the pro- progression of the show goes is him slowly becoming more conscious. His relationship with Malcolm X influences his life and the way he thinks and sees the world. So at some point he even starts to try to organize within the crime families uh, 
in a way that uh, was a proactive, very much towards the civil rights movement in the sense of, of um, uh, his relationship with Malcolm X and different things of that nature. So it was really interesting to get to play all those different things. Yeah, yeah. And in season two, we, we see that that evolution. And, and I think about the timeliness of the show airing right now. Uh, season two goes into issues of voting rights and uh, you know, suppression of the vote, especially among blacks, uh, African-Americans, uh, and how timely that is to today. The show is airing right when there's a new round of attempts to suppress votes and to limit the, the, the access to the ballot for, for a lot of folks. Um, what does that mean to you in, in sort of doing this show right now at this moment in history? I mean, that was this sort of objective in the beginning. We were hoping to be a prism for society that people would be able to look at what was happening then and then look how it related to their own lives and create thought and dialogue. And I think uh, right now, of course, with, with the movements that went across the nation, civil rights movement, it parallels very clearly with the civil rights movement of the 60s. In, in 1964, which is a year they find themselves in right now, um, that's when the Voting Rights Act was signed. That's when the Civil Rights Act was signed. Um, by LBJ, and that was uh, when we had our first Academy Award winner, it's Sidney Poitier, and it was when um, Martin Luther King got his Nobel Prize. It was a, a lot of different things going on that were percolating, and the people themselves were frustrated by being oppressed and pushed downward, started to fight back. And so we see inside of the, uh, the second season, we see the riots, we see the protests, we see the, the fights for voters' rights, which has been happening even, as you say, here now and Florida and Georgia, and we're still looking at these things and we're addressing them in a way that uh, allows people to look at these issues as they're affecting their lives right now. And that was the goal. That was the purpose. And to get a conscious about it, as he does slowly, um, about the way we have to be together and work together, help each other, have rights that are like excluded for everyone to be able to have life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, as uh, Martin Luther King said in his speech. Yeah, and and uh, you know, as we're talking right now, uh, we're we're sort of midway through season two. There's a little bit of a break, but in that final episode, Bumpy is is talking to to Malcolm X, and and Malcolm is sort of joking like, "Bumpy, you're getting political." And and actually, Bumpy has a, a great line. I want to make sure I get it right. No, nothing scares white people more than black people voting, which was such a you know for Bumpy to say that. And again, thinking about this moment in in real time in 2021 and what they're going through on the show in 1964, uh, pretty incredible. But what, what do you make of Bumpy's evolution and, and as he's becoming more involved in, in uh, you know, sort of politics and organizing, like you mentioned? And, and uh, you know, this is this is based on a real life character. So you sort of know where he goes. But but how do you sort of see the him, him evolving as a person? It's interesting to watch him because we, we see him in the first season. He comes out of prison and he's got a, so much oppressed anger and frustration. He tries to to like uh, reclaim his dream, which is reclaim Harlem in his mind, which is like sort of like by any means necessary, the American dream, he's gonna he's gonna try to grab it, you know? We watch him fighting throughout that whole process in the first season, you know, uh, where he's trying to gain background and get the same rights in his community as that uh, uh, others have in the Italian community. And then um, we end though with the sanctions against his life with everyone going against him. And we open up in the second season in a different way, you know, we. We open up with him on the run and him at the lowest of the low and trying to figure out how he can create the strategies to be able to get out of it while the world is imploding. It's just sort of a metaphor of the same two these struggles of what's happening in the world, what's happening with him. And finally, he uh, he's able to like get a decision, a strategic decision to like take the the um, 
the, uh, the drug connection between France and Marseille and, and, uh, and New York and, and step in between that to try to like uh, build his own empire, what he feels he's rightfully owed. We watch him doing that as the civil rights movement starts to become more oppressed. As my wife, as you see, Lufanesh becomes like more uh, active in the feminist movement and also in the voting rights movement. And so we start to see all these different characters that are affected by the time and the place. And, and Bumpy is one who's like slowly, slowly come to consciousness, like like Malcolm said, you know, he's was, that's that's when the power is there. And uh, when we like all band together and fight. Um, of course, we can't forget Bumpy's also a mobster. He's also a murderer. <laughs> so I think, I think I think it's really clear. You have to remember that uh, in, in the first season we kind of saw like how like his heroin dealing and problems affected him personally because you see his daughter is a heroin addict and a prostitute on the streets. So the damage of, of what he's doing is also clear and apparent. And I think it's trying to come out of that growth and care more about the community that we see. But um, you can't deny that he's a murderer. He's a drug dealer. Uh, he's a mobster. Um, that's true. He's a family man too, but that's really true. We, would, we watch the extremes of his life as I play him on it. What, what is that like? And you've played a lot of heavies uh, over the years in sort of threading that needle in, in sort of determining how much am I going to make this character likable versus sort of exploring the, the dark side. Uh, as an actor, what, what's that like for you? And, and what attracts you to uh, you know, s- some of these complicated characters that you have played over the years? I mean, I don't really look at the character as bad and when I first address him and stuff. I'm looking for... Um, what is kind of the link between me and them. So I like, uh, I've talked about it before where I kind of like pull away the experiences of the person's life, you know, the things that built them up and start to tear them away as if you're going like to the bottom. When you get to the bottom, I get to a link that kind of attaches me to them. It's a light, I think, that everybody has inside of them that's universal. And then I put all the, the things back on top of that again. But by that time, there's cracks in all the things that I pulled away. So you see the light. So I don't have to worry about you seeing like some of the goodness in the character because it exists. It's at the core of his being, but it's just his actions and his actions are derived from all the things that happen in his world. And that's where I look at him. I don't, I, I try to judge characters and people in the same way. I want to ask you, uh, I saw a recent interview where you mentioned that you, you were sort of starting to feel a little disillusioned with, with acting and that actually working on Jingle Jangle sort of brought you back, brought some, some sort of, uh, uh, life and light back to to acting. T- t- talk a little bit about that and and sort of the journey for you in in acting and coming to a point where maybe you were ready to sort of do something different. Yeah, I think I was hanging by a thread, but you know, it's a thread of being able to take care of my family and stuff too. So I had to figure out what I was going to do. Um, I think um, I was having a really hard time. I was finding no joy in in the, in the work. I wasn't progressing, not getting better. Um, wasn't looking forward to to uh, to doing the work. It became like a like a true job, a chore that I had to do, and I had lost that sort of exploration. Because originally I was like, I'm I'm diving into every character, and I'm going to go to it, and I'm going to find the link between each character I play and myself, till everything is one, so we're all the same. I lost that search, you know. I think I I think I lost my purpose. My purpose was to just do that discovery. And um, so it took a long time. I was doing work and I, people were telling me it was okay. I was like, it's not so good, really. You know, it didn't have like a, a spark of, 
of like uh, imagination and exploration, you know. And um, yeah, I, I I did a movie with with David, with David Tauber, you know, and he has such enthusiasm about things and life and what the project we were doing, and there was some magic that was happening. It felt like magic when I was working on it. Everybody was like uh, coming out of some Disney movie or something. Like they were so happy. You know, they'd be like, hi, hi, good morning, good morning. Everybody's working so hard on that little, little piece of the corner of the world when you when I was on that project that it really sparked something in me and uh, it started to come back alive a little bit. And um, then I think film afterwards, I was I started to do my work a little better. And, and then actually at the torch, the last end of Godfather, like maybe seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, whatever, I started... Uh, I started getting better. I made a decision to, to allow him to evolve so he could enjoy life in a different way, not be frozen. And that's what I was, frozen. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can see that that spark, too, in sort of your interactions with some of the other great, your great co-stars on, on Godfather, like Vincent D'Onofrio mm -hmm. and Giancarlo Esposito, who are amazing as well <laughs> to see you spar with them on camera. That's that's fun to watch. Is that fun to do? Is that fun working oh, with yeah. With them. Yeah, I mean, this is like he's like a monster. He's like he's, he's so so powerful as an actor, you know. And so doing the scenes with him has been really fun, and we've been finding each other. And then our relationship changed in the story where we started to become partners, and then you find a, a lightness that's happening and a sort of respect that's happening. And Vincent's been doing amazing work, and Giancarlo plays like uh, such a flamboyant but but scented character. That I like I love like when I know when you're gonna do something with him, there's gonna be some something new something happening, you know, um, as well as I think like Antoinette Crawl, you know, Antoinette, she, she plays my daughter and she's, uh, she's doing a beautiful job along with, uh, Ilfinesh, my wife, you know, they just, they really like push you to like be able to do some of your better work because the relationships are so intricate, you know, and, and of course, Nigel, uh, he's a big foil for me as Malcolm X. I mean, he's like, I remember when he auditioned for the part in the room and, and I was, he was sitting there in his relaxed position and it just seemed like he was effortless. He was just, he was just Malcolm X right in front of you, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's been a joy for me actually working with these actors. Yeah. You know, writers. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and as an ex executive producer, I'm sure you've like worked with, with uh, Chris quite a bit also in sort of figuring out where things are going with Bumpy and I, I'm sure yeah. that's so speaking your, your role as, as a producer, uh, You've really uh, championed a lot of great young new filmmakers, uh, uh, and and uh, you know from from Ryan Coogler uh, in Fruitvale Station uh, to uh, uh, yeah, I have my list here. Um, you've done uh, yeah Bobby. Boots Riley from Sorry to Bother You, uh, yeah Ryan Coogler Fruitvale Station, Roxanne Roxanne Dope songs My Brothers Taught Me. Next up, you have Passing from Rebecca Hall. I mean, you've you've managed to re you have an eye for finding some really great talent and championing them early in their career. Talk a little bit about that and sort of, you know, your, your pride in, in sort of helping to elevate some of these young filmmakers. You have to give them a platform to be able to support their work because they, they have such so much to say. And it's been, um, so I've been trying to, I've been working on that even before I had a, I had a company called Spirit Dance and we did about four or five films. It was mostly all uh, new filmmakers that were trying to speak and I wanted to like help them be able to get their voice out to the world. And then um, now with Nina Yang, my partner, we've been able to, uh, I think, encourage like new filmmakers and, and hold them up as best we can to be able to do the work and be able to get their voices out there. Because they're very, they're, they're artists on their own. We choose, we're just lucky that we were able to recognize what great depth 
they had as people and artists at an early stage. You know, I mean, when you, I knew that Chloe Zhao was a um, uh, an auteur, a great filmmaker, uh, just from my conversations with her and what she was doing. You know, and and Ryan was passionate. I, I mean, it was like a meeting with him. You like to know that this person has a lot to say. Sometimes it's just to lend the playing ground for them to be able to express and to be able to create. And that's what we do. And, and we try to look for new voices and voices of color, too, that are are uh, trying to get the message out to the world, you know. Um, yeah. We do. It's significant. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great. You've been recognized by Indie Spirits. Uh, you know, the, these are films that have really made, made a difference. Um, mm -hmm. Speaking of films that are coming up, uh, tell me a little bit about Respect and, and uh, you know, working on that project, uh, uh, you know, with Jennifer Hudson. I mean, that's sort of a, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're looking forward to that. I know that film was sort of delayed by, by COVID. I think we're finally going to get to see it soon. Uh, but what was, what was that experience like in, in working with Jennifer? I love working with Jennifer. Actually, this is the third time I've played her dad, you know. Uh, <laughs> that's... And, uh, we always really get along really well. She's like, she's, she's really talented. We actually won the Academy Award on the same night together. So we were like, got to see each other, you know, that. Yeah. So there's a bond already, you know, in so many different ways, you know. But she's um, beautiful as uh, Aretha. I mean, I, I play her father. I play, uh, you know, her dad, who's a um, uh, preacher. Uh -huh. You know, just, you know, it's very famous for this style of preaching called Hooping. Uh, and uh, who was also a civil rights activist would work, you know, he did marches with, with Martin. They were very close friends and one with the King. And, um, but we watched this Fingali like person, like trying to mold his daughter and force her to do things in the way he does. And a lot of it's uh, about her expressing her freedom uh, in her music and in her life. And so I, I think it's going to be an interesting film for people to see, you know, they don't know anything about Aretha because uh, Jennifer plays a woman that uh, shows some of the struggles that she had in her life. Yeah, yeah. No, such a fascinating story, the, the whole story of Aretha Franklin. I love the fact that, that this is now a common thing. You're just going to continue to play her father, I hope, in you know, several more <laughs> films. Um, yeah. Um, uh, so, so speaking of, you mentioned the Oscars, we, we got to mention, uh, you know, that, that quite a career highlight. And, uh, of course, all those accolades you got for, for Last King of, of Scotland. Uh, you still think about that moment? Do you still remember that, that moment on stage? Does that pop up as sort of a, you know, a, a seminal moment in your career? Or what, what do you remember about, uh, you know, winning that Oscar? Mm -hmm. You know, you're sitting there and then you, you, you hear your name and it's, it's like an electric shock going through you, you know, as you, you know, you get up. I think the thing I remembered most was like uh, probably that one of the things was that the other actors that were all up for the same role were all standing and giving me support and stuff. And that was uh, pretty impressive, you know. And I got a chance to try to speak to my community and stuff and tell them to believe, you know, to believe that they can you can accomplish anything that they want, no matter what their circumstances may seem, you know, you know, it's that kind of a thing that's been the driver for me. Uh, to believe. And, um, that's why when I lost that feeling, it was very detrimental to me as an artist. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, glad you got that feeling back. Uh, I'm curious, by the way, when, when people, because you have such a, such a body of work now, 
What is it that people most ask you about these days? Which which project, or do they just have another burning question like, why do you keep playing Jennifer Hudson's dad, or <laughs> what's what's the sort of the burning That'd question people have for you? <laughs> you know, it, 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 I've been really fortunate since I started my career. I I don't really play the same character too much, um, and so the, the people that come to me are like talk to me. They talk about different films. Like some people might talk about, you know, Black Panther. You know, maybe kids know that, and maybe they know, um, you know, Jingle Jangle, or 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 maybe they know Star Wars. And yeah. then there's like an artistic group that maybe they know some obscure movies, or maybe they know Ghost Dog, or you know, and it's got its own cult following, or or Last King because of the kind of intensity that was in, in that character. Um, so just it's interesting. Like it's people from all different walks, and it's kind of. Kind of refreshing for me. Yeah, no, I imagine, and and you're one of the the few folks who both Star Wars and Marvel. You're 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 sort of you're part of both worlds. So, um, yeah. I've got a couple of films here to to sort of I'm going to bring up, and then you sort of tell me what kind of first comes to mind because I want to make sure we hit some of your your big ones, including the one that I'm sure every once in a while people who think they're clever and this is going to be include me bring up, which is, what do you remember about Fast Times at Ridgemont High? Oh, okay. And is that still crazy to think that you were in that film? Uh, yeah, it was the start of a lot of our careers, you know, with Sean and uh, Phoebe and Nick, Nick Cage or, you know. Um, yeah. Um, I, remember, I remember that we were all, like, young and we were, like, working, and I was uh, in character and stuff, and I remember Sean... And, and David, a kid who was playing my brother, was like behind me, like discussing stealing my bag. You know, it was like we weren't working. We were just like walking around living, you know. And I remember that conversation of him like in character, like trying to steal my bag. And and I guess it was it was kind of like a big start, kind of my start. You know what I mean? So yeah, that was a kind of a leading moment for me, you know, um, as an actor. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then from there, you you actually were speaking of being an iconic sort of franchises. You're in two of the most iconic uh, movies about the Vietnam War ever: Good Morning Vietnam and Platoon. Um, mm -hmm. uh, do you have any specific sort of memories of of sort of that moment in time and in sort of you know appearing in in those films right around the same time? I think I remember auditioning over and over again for uh, for Platoon, and then at one point Oliver had me in the in the room and he would keep bringing in actors, but I would still get to stay and read with him and stuff. And I'm like, do I have the part? And he didn't, and I, and he didn't tell me yet. And I'd leave and yell out the window, do better, do better. You know what I mean? And, and uh, I remember really well. And I remember, uh, uh, you know, Platoon was unique because we all went and we kind of went through a method experience of, of, of the character. We were like given like a, a shovel, our clothes were taken. We were given new clothes. We had to dig a hole. And they said, that's where you're going to sleep for the next two weeks, you know. And we would be out in the jungle learning about jungle warfare. We get attacked by the Marines. We get lost, not have any water or food, you know, before we started the film. So that was a unique experience uh, for any kind of uh, uh, filmic experience that we all went through this experience. And then at the end, when we were going to start, we were, they took us on a bus and they drove us to a river and they said, start crossing the river. And then they said, okay, start action. And they started shooting the film from the camp where we were in the jungle. I think um, the other one, like uh, Good Morning Vietnam, Robin Williams was um, just a unique person, you know, just a really special man. And uh, and you could see the genius of his mind, you know, like you could be in a room and somebody would say something about 
you know, they're they're selling chickens down at such and such. And then you know, somebody else would say, so be talking in the, on the van and they'd say, uh, my uh, blue, my blue convertible uh, got lost yesterday. And all of a sudden, by the time we finished, all these people talking for an hour and Robin steps out. And he's like talking about, you know, the uh, chicken that's inside of this blue van that's going down this road on 8th Street or something like that. And it's just it's just mind boggling, you know, like uh, the way he thinks and, and um he was a special guy. So, two more films I want to get to because Bird was obviously your your first big starring role, and I think that was sort of uh, you know the, the 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 huge sort of propelled your career. That and The Crying Game, of course, two films that that really sort of brought you front and center in in this world, and that's when things really took off for you. Um, what do you remember about that sort of moment in time? Uh, you know, starting with Bird and, and sort of bringing you to the forefront. Where it was like a important film for me, you know, uh, really one of the most important films for me. Well, first, because it's the first time I ever was trusted to play a leading role like that. I wasn't sure, you know, Clint was very sure. I mean, I went in, I met with him. We didn't audition. Uh, he looked at a tape and, and I said, I, I think he gave me the part, you know, and um, I went and bought a sax that afternoon. And I just like find out later that the sax is broken and stuff. And I, I've been trying to make it sound good. When they gave me real sax, uh, I realized how easy what it was to make the sound after all the struggle I had had with it. You know, and then we went to cons with the movie. I was just a young kid, you know. I was and I won the Palm Door, and uh, I wasn't expecting that. I, I had no no idea about that kind of thing. I had never even done hardly any press before in my career. You know, with like one of the biggest stars in the world, and everybody's screaming his name, Clint, Clint, and then I like win this award as the best actor. I was like the youngest in the first black actor almost to, to win the award and and um and it, it, it made the international world like look at my work in a different way i think it made some people really recognize me as an artist and allowed me to make all these choices uh diverse choices like this doctor this dictator this whatever you know police officer this federal guy this drunk you know whatever it might be it, it allowed people to see that i could maybe do that as Forrest Whitaker, catch up on Godfather of Harlem via Epics. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Drew Griffith edited this episode and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head on over to Variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest Emmy predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Danielle Terciano and Jazz Tanke, I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you on the circuit. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.